0: Welcome to the Mergers and Acquisitions podcast. If you're putting up a business for sale, what are some of the key considerations on how to set it up commercially? Should you run an auction, which is probably the most recommended sales strategy, or should you sell to a reputable company you already know? And what do you do if you've received a very attractive offer for your business, even if you weren't planning a sale? I'm very happy to have with me in this podcast, Julian Mulchries. Julian is an old friend, and someone that advised us many times when I was in Shell. He also advised some of my Shell colleagues on one of our biggest deals, the acquisition of BG. Until recently, he ran the global natural resource business for Bank of America, but is now something of a minister without portfolio, executive vice chairman of the firm, and one of the bank's most senior dealmakers, fronting up across sectors for some of the firm's most important clients and deals. Welcome, Julian. Thanks for making it to the studio.
1: A Pleasure to be here and looking forward to the discussion. Please.
0: In addition to the dilemmas on how to sell a business, we'll today also touch on the subject of negotiation. And Julian, I'll ask you about your views on the current M&A market. But let's get going on the first subject. So what's the advice that you would give when somebody approaches you with a question on how to sell the business? Are you going for an auction or a more limited setup of your deal?
1: Well, look, I think the default answer is that an auction is always best. But as with every rule, there's always exceptions. Working out when to do something that's different from the default is, is some of the most important advice I think we ever give as advisors. You take a step back, and, and the, the simple answer is the benefits of a, the competitive tension you get through an auction process are, are self evident, right? And I think uh, if you can run a great, strong one, it's hard to beat. At the same time, look, often. You know, you'll recall from your time at Shell, you you get an approach on a business you weren't planning on selling. You're not sure whether you want to go there, and it's confidential internally, let alone externally at the time. And then maybe it's more difficult. Do you go wide? Do you start narrow? And then maybe once you know you got somewhere, you go wide. And I think that goes to the risks of sale as well, right? Um, we'll, We'll talk about it later in terms of public market, but whether it's public or private, the risks of sale, the cost of business of knowing they were potentially sold or for sale, and then they're not that's a challenge. And look, the other things which I think are are relevant is um, sometimes if you can accelerate an auction or preempt an auction, you get to a faster outcome. And sometimes speed is a sign of strength and speed can get you a a better deal. So I don't know, look, in conclusion, what I say, I'd say in general, an auction's better, but you always have to be ready to deviate, be flexible and um, adjust a little bit to either the deal dynamics or frankly, the the market dynamics when you're even setting an auction or a process up.
0: Yeah, so it depends on the situation. That's what you're saying. When I look at the same dilemma through a different lens, I get to the same conclusion. I'm interested to look at where the power balance is in the negotiation between the buyer and the seller. And in the beginning, of course, the power is with the seller. They have all the cards. They can decide on the sales process, uh, which buyers to let into the process, and they set the timeline. But then when the process goes along, the buyer becomes more powerful. Uh, The seller may now have lost other buyers in the transaction, And the buyer might feel they are the only one left in town. It's almost inevitable for the buyers at the end of the process to ask for exclusivity. And gaining that for them is then confirmation that the power balance has indeed changed. And at that moment there's more to lose for the seller than for the buyer. A buyer can walk away from the negotiations without any negative consequence while the seller is then left to pick up the pieces. They have to accept a lower price or worse conditions from other participants in the auction, or also uh, they might have to stop the process. That's something we worried about often in uh, planning our sales. And that imbalance at the end can result in value loss for the buyer, even if the auction yielded a clear transaction price. That's what we call value chipping, and certainly it's a major problem towards the end of any process. So I would always advise a seller to do their utmost to cash in on the period that they still have the power. And you couldn't do that by really preparing well up front. And a nine times of 10, I think an auction will better than an exclusive sale.
1: Yeah, no, I think, look, mostly, but I'd say, look, maybe more like seven or eight times out of 10 than sort of uh, nine out of 10.
0: (laughs) I'll take that. And the value chipping that I spoke about, have you come across that? And to what extent can it happen?
1: Yeah, for sure. But I, I always say the best defense against um, value chipping is always trying to chip up higher yourself, right? Because I, I think it it makes it easier to protect yourself if you're trying to move the other way. But you're right. Any good buyer and their advisors are always trying to sniff out throughout any process what the dynamics are and if there's an opportunity to uh, to buy for cheaper, right? So from the sell side, a sell side advisor, a sell side client, I think it's all about framing and developing a good process, whether it's an auction or a one-on-one sale, and the, the buyer has to believe he's going to lose if he chips, whether it's lose versus your process that you've developed and other people, or a hold value that hopefully through the credibility you built in the whole process, he really believes in because you made him believe it, right? Um, and that way, I think if he tries to chip, you've got a credible response or, or a credible threat to always hit, hit back. I think it's also why sometimes in processes, it's uh, you want to move quickly in the final stages. Don't give the buyer time to chip, he's pleased to be in that final stage, potentially one. Maybe you even ask him to rebid again and then race hard to sign him or whore
0: up. Can you tell me more about the case where you did deviate from the advice of doing an auction and a buyer was prepared to go exclusive rather than using an auction process?
1: It's all about assessing the deck of cards that you hold who's both at the start of the process, in the middle, and frankly, right at the end as well. You've been in situations with us where you you get a preempt Early and you've got to decide what do you you do with it, especially if it's a it's a decent number. So that's always a good test. How confident are you at that point? Particularly if you've done your early market testing. That if someone comes at a pre-empt, maybe you want to take it because you know you're not so confident in that wider process. Sometimes I would say the the threat of an auction can be more powerful than an actual process. And then look, I think maybe if you go through an auction process. Sometimes you do go exclusive and effectively go one-on-one towards the end, even after initial bids if someone's well ahead of the others, simply because you want to catch them, drive them, and get them to the finish line before they realize they're the only show in town or they're the, the best guy there. And look, we always talk about auctions, and it's wonderful, I like, as a as a banker or as a client, when you run a process where you've got 25 people at the table, you know, 10 people bidding at the end, but frankly, all you need to have a successful auction process is two people and sometimes you can go straight to that if you know the market as opposed to waiting for the inevitable two guys to come through a wider process so look back to where we started i think there's uh, benefits always from an auction process than creating that competitive tension but there's different ways you can achieve it and sometimes you preempt you close off that auction early and you sort of take advantage of that to get to where you want to get to
0: yeah i've also seen situations of course with joint ventures where joint venture partners are the obvious candidate to speak to first, and they may even have contractual rights to buy a business first. And in Shell, I came across an example where we had a business we'd contemplated selling for a long time, and then suddenly the main competitor got sold to a private equity firm. And it gave me a real pang of regret because I felt that we were pipped at the post. But we then managed to convert it into a process where we looked at who were the losing buyers and we could refer to an established market price from this other deal, uh, which had been the result of a competitive auction, and then could work in a more exclusive setting to achieve a similar result with a very targeted process.
1: No, I agree. Sometimes with a JV, frankly, you have no choice. Um, although like I said, even then, I guess when we look at some of those JV processes where you're slightly constrained, we still try and create something of an auction or an option competitive process by looking in an IPA or maybe something that is allowed in the agreement. And look, you're right. I think if you have a good benchmark, you could use that almost as, as a reference point to uh, that is your competitive process because someone's already been there. And also look, the last thing on this, but I think this is like, I think people always underestimate the power of the hold value. If you built a credible process, you may not have got to where you want to. The buyer may have won, but it's still not at a big enough price. And I think if you built that credibility through a process, you can still say, look, great. <laughs> you may think you won, but you haven't got there. I've still got my hold value. So that can be used at the start as well as the end.
0: You can always step back as long as the buyer does believe that you'll actually do it. Correct, correct. And then, Julian, if your business is listed on the stock exchange, of course, the sales process uh, can be very different. And you've advised in many situations like that. Can you tell me a bit more about the differences?
1: Well, actually, a strange place to start here, but maybe sometimes it actually isn't that different from a a narrow auction, at least, narrow private auction, in that it's an affect a handful of bilaterals that you maybe try and conduct in the case of a public market company. It's just more up in lights because the profile typically of a Listed company deal, and sometimes at the extreme, you, you get a, a listed client decides to effectively put a for sale sign up and put themselves in play via announcing a strategic review or something like that, right? And then it is for sure a vanilla auction process, just in a public forum. But you're right. Back to your question, I think that doesn't happen that often, and I think more often you you have a private approach coming at you in the case of a public company. Maybe you make one or two calls to confirm for your client got the best and most motivated buyer in front of you as your base case. So I guess a, a very private mini auction sometimes happens before you announce or, or dependent on the price achieved. At the, maybe at the end, you try to leave enough space in the contracts and the deal agreements for a buyer to be able to come in and, and top even after you've announced a deal that has cleared your hold value where you're ready to recommend in a public market deal, but you're still hoping maybe someone else goes even higher. The other thing maybe it's worth talking about is the risk of a failed deal is so much higher when it's a public company. Because if you're selling a division, okay, look, it's hugely frustrating. There's employee issues and so on. But you haven't put a question mark around the equity story of of Shell if you failed to sell division X or Y. Whereas if it's a mid-cap, large-cap listed company, you have to be very sure that you're going to finish what you started. And very few CEOs want to Perfectly put themselves in play unless the deal certainty and visibility is super high, especially given the risks of leak. And that means, I think, when the time you break cover or announce, nine times out of ten, you want to know you've got a price that works for you. And so, maybe to invert the whole thing, I said earlier, in a private auction, sometimes you use that whole value as a final negotiation. In the public market process, you almost have to start there. In a sense, the first thing a guy who approaches a client has to beat is they have to meet that whole value whether it's defined by an internal valuation or a sort of really compelling kind of premium and then after that once you know you've got that maybe then you take some risks of confidentiality leaks by talking to a few others or you go live with the process so yeah it's a lot of the dynamics are the same but i think your, your frame is different you start with that whole value to beat before you take risks by trying to then drive value with a competitive process
0: Thanks, Julian. Let me try to summarize this first section. So if you're selling a business, you want to maximize value, and deal certainty is important, uh, then an auction will work well for you. The balance of power during a sales process shifts gradually from seller to buyer, and the auction gives you the best chance to keep the power the longest, even if the threat of the competition is only one other guy or the threat of an auction if you decide to go more, uh, exclusive in the first instance. And then exceptions might be if you already know the market price, if you have a limited buyer set and you're prepared to take a bit more risk to uh, fall back on your hold value, then you might want to deal with only one or a limited set of buyers. If you're in a public process, it's different, but still the same headlines and necessarily you will go lower first And then the auction start later once you've made it past the whole value and your deal certainty requirements in the first instance. Well let's take a break for a message about Pilco, the sponsor of this podcast. PILCO and Associates is the leading advisor to deal leaders and senior executives on operational.
1: EHS and ESG risks and liabilities in the global chemical and energy industries. Since 1980, the firm has advised on over $600 billion of transactions involving facilities in 80 countries, including some of the highest profile deals during the past five decades. PILCO's advisors have an average of 38 years of relevant professional experience in operational and executive roles with major energy and chemical companies. For more information, go to PILCO.com.
0: Now, let's talk a bit about negotiation, Julian. Would it be right to say there is a negotiation in every deal? And if so, how important is it to do this right? Yeah, look, I think
1: I always say that every conversation is part of the negotiation. And uh, I don't think that's often appreciated, not as enough as it should be. Uh, and sometimes I say this to deal teams we, we work with is less interaction can sometimes be a benefit because, look, if I'm on the other side of the table, I almost want to have as many conversations with the seller and his advisor as I can because every conversation I learn something. And I think um, if you flip that around, sometimes I say less is more. And in terms of how you run that interaction, I think it's it's super critical to stay consistent. Ideally, you've got not just the same messages, but ideally the same, same team, same group in every meeting. So there's no ambiguity. There can't be different perspectives, different emphases driving things. And even within that, it sometimes seems a little anal and painful, but I, I kind of often in- just insist on having a, almost an agreed script for every session so that everyone's On the same line and if a buyer decides to call someone else in the organization or the deal team they know exactly what the script and the the message was and you don't start to end up having pitfalls or gaps.
0: Yeah so even if you have different people or different teams you want them to stick to the same script. So what are other pitfalls that you can tell our audience about uh, on the basis of your many years of being part of negotiations?
1: Yeah it's funny you you mentioned exclusivity earlier (laughs) It's one of those strange things. I actually quite like it when a buyer asks for uh, exclusivity, especially if they ask for it early or, uh, frankly, too early. Look, if someone wants something, it always means that I think my client can get something for that. And at the extreme, look, you get a... I remember one time I was advising a client and the bidder was already the clear winner, but they asked for exclusivity. And it's a great position to then take because you then go back and say, look, if you want exclusivity, I need you to do X, Right, whether that's taking pieces out from the contract that you don't like or trying to drive price higher. And uh, you go straight to, I need this for exclusivity, without mentioning the fact that, frankly, you don't have a backup plan or or other bidders. So you can be direct and straightforward and and hook on to that exclusivity clause. The other piece, I I touched on it earlier, but I think um, talking too much is every interaction, you you learn something. And I think um, even... How fast you go back, whether you go back too quick or too slow, I think depend on particularly how you frame the speed or the slowness. As a buyer, I learned something. One of the tests, I think, is if you feel you've got a weak process, you've still got to kind of walk the walk. That confidence levels are super high, and you drive as fast as if you had uh, an incredibly competitive kind of contract race. You may be trying to get the finish line fast and play off people in a contract race, or frankly, that may be any game you, you have in town, and you're trying to get to the uh, finish line with them as fast as you can before they realize it. And then to your earlier question, they start to chip on price or on the contract.
0: Yep. One of the problems I have observed with people in negotiations, that is often that they're afraid to make concessions. What's your view on that? I'm not sure I agree. I think uh, concessions lead
1: conversations forward often. I think that they're not necessarily a form of weakness if they're done in the right way and you you frame it the right way. I always think you want to know what matters to the other side. And um, when you get to the end, you don't really want that to be a long list. I think you often see, I think, people getting frustrated in in a negotiation because small things are left on the table for for too long. And you kind of, it gets in the way of the negotiation dynamic, it gets in the way of building that relationship and trust. What are the things that that matter for that final trade? That's really the, the key to discover. I mean, the, the only nuance, here, I guess, is that sometimes it's good to make a big thing out of something early <laughs> that actually you can live with. Um, you, you build it up almost to trade it later. So even though at that stage, it doesn't really cost or hurt you, but you've made a big thing of it earlier. So it's kind of what are the two or three things that really matter to you? And maybe one thing you don't really care about, you make big in order to trade it later. But I get rid of a lot of the small things because it keeps the uh, momentum and the relationship.
0: Yeah, so that point that you're holding could be one of the things that you use against value chipping in a later process.
1: Agreed, exactly.
0: I think the problem with negotiation, especially by the time it is between two parties only, is to make progress by making these concessions. And people feel that if you make a concession, you may be in a hurry, and therefore other concessions will just follow. And of course, then you're on this downhill uh, slide, and you don't know how to stop the slide before you know what you're at, your walk-away price. Mm. And they're just sitting there and waiting for the next concession. And, of course, uh, this can play on, on two sides. And then the deal doesn't progress. And I've seen that happening in practice. And, therefore, I think it's only the experience and the personalities of the negotiators on both sides that can get out of this cycle. That's got to be trust that then leads to an expectation that if I make a concession, that will be repaid by a concession on the other side. And, of course, you only get trust if you've made an emotional investment um, in each other as negotiators.
1: Both now and also uh, maybe in, in sort of prior conversations as well. It's, uh, it's over time you build that, right? So.
0: Yeah, sometimes you've had the chance to build up a relationship beforehand. And sometimes you just bang with a new person that you don't know at the negotiation. And even then it makes sense to invest in it. And I think trust is then leading us to emotions. Have you seen emotions playing a role in negotiations, Julian?
1: For sure. I think, look, you have to get to know people to what we were just talking about, I think, to be able to read their emotions. And um, I actually almost find it harder negotiating with someone I've never negotiated with before than, <laughs> than someone I've I've known for a long, long time, because you kind of know them deeper. You know whether you've really hit a pressure point or whether it's just a negotiation tantrum or, or issue. Sometimes tantrums are bigger than they really are, and you, you know they're being used tactically. Look, in other cases, I think someone with a very calm demeanor can make a big impression with a a sudden emotional reaction. To be honest, I think I've got, I think those negotiators are more successful than those that kind of can go off the the handle and have a big issue too often because it starts to just become noise. Whereas if you've built up a sort of credibility of constructiveness, you'd be making concessions to the earlier part, but then you really dig in and say, no, no, look, this is an issue and you don't get the right answer and you walk out, suddenly that has, oh, okay, I've actually hit a pressure point. The other thing you talked about relationships, I think it's also important to be able to bridge back into negotiations after you've walked, right? Especially if you ultimately want to do the deal, it's just a matter of price or an issue. So I think both buyer and seller, particularly on the sell side, you need to make sure you've Given the buyer that chance. So you can afford to have a big break in a bus, whether it's driven by buyer or seller, but you've got a path back. And I think one thing I see some clients using well, and I often encourage it, is where well, you've got almost two layers of, of conversation going on, as long as they're aligned on the script to my earlier conversation. Because then one is kind of good cop, bad cop, one keeps it very smooth and is the way back in after a bust. And the day-to-day deal team can then take frankly, more risks if they know there's another relationship and dynamic upstairs or alongside, which can always be used to pull things back or uh, take things forward. And maybe this is the advisor speaking, but I think there's sometimes where we can be helpful as well, because it may be the first time when you were at Shell, you've been dealing with company X, but probably we have several times before. I even get calls sometimes from the buyer when I'm acting for a seller saying, look, I'm hearing this do I really need to do this, Julian, in terms of moving? Look, if you've built that trust over years with the buyer, the fact you say, no, no, look, you may think you won the auction. Frankly, you have, but you still need to move up because it really is the whole value, can be quite powerful. And that's also relationships, trust that you've built over years, not just in the deal, that get you to that uh, good outcome.
0: Okay, thank you. So I'll try to summarize that as well. Firstly, you started with every conversation is a negotiation. And when a buyer asks for exclusivity, that's when you rejoice because that's great news for a selling party. Sometimes, not always, but it's normally. Negotiations make progress through concessions and don't let the perception of weakness withhold you from making a concession, but do try to trade multiple issues at the same time to keep a balance. And building trust and getting to know your counterpart will really help you assess the emotions in the negotiations. And if you know how to use these, that makes a huge impact in the negotiation. And finally, design two layers of contact between the buyer and the seller. So let's go to the third subject of today, and that's the outlook of the current M&A market. It's been very volatile and higher interest rates have made things a lot more difficult for buyers. But then again, valuations may be coming down. So how do you see the market?
1: Yeah, look, the last two, three weeks has, I think, showed just how much markets can change. I mean, if we've been recording this podcast a month or so ago, I would have been saying certainly from a sector standpoint that I was um, in the oil and gas and renewable space. I was actually starting to feel optimistic that buyers were uh, adjusting to a bit of a new normal, a new normal in that sector space in terms of views on oil price, where electricity prices were going, but also starting to align on when interest rates were going to peak GDP growth, we've definitely seen a narrowing of the sort of what was a very widespread of, of assumptions. Now, I think that's all kind of blown back out again. And you look at the uh, volatility index that we watched, the sort of VIX in the equity market, it's gone back above the 30 level after being in the sort of low 20s or even below. And I think it's just, we talked about emotions and psychology earlier. I think boards just tend to be much more internally focused in difficult times, and rightly so. And to state the obvious, it's just far tougher to get alignment between buyer and seller on fundamentals, on financing costs and those growth rates. But look, what I would say is those kind of broad questions, it's hard to answer as a generalization because it really is sector by sector. We haven't run many infra sell sides without having multiple bids and where the default for sure has 10 out of 10 times been an auction. Renewables and power markets seen a lot of money flowing into it and that money is still there. It's now more a price question and an interest rate question. Whereas, as you know, in, in oil and gas, it's been a thin market, sort of challenging market and we've been much more often defaulting to very narrow auctions or, or, or one-on-ones.
0: And private equity is still there with a lot of dry powder?
1: Yeah, for sure. Lots of dry powder. I think they've raised lots of money. The question now is the returns they deploy at given where interest rates are moving. So possibly not yet a big role in the next six months. But look, I think that maybe is an opportunity for other people to step up, especially in sectors like chemicals where private equity was historically very active, but their cost of capitals moved up. But I think that bid when I look at private equity is probably more now in less on the oil and gas patch, but more in renewables, future fuels, the new energy systems, infrastructure.
0: And if you talk about new renewables and new energies, I'm a bit surprised to see that uh, the current higher energy prices have not really caused an acceleration in renewable energy projects. There's actually a lot of talk about the infrastructure in that sector staying behind where we need to be. Because you would expect that the economics of these projects will have improved significantly with the outlook of longer time prices with the competition being the oil and gas business.
1: Yeah, I think, look, more money for sure is available to flow into this market than ever before. I think whether it's flows from ESG money, people just getting excited about what is a sort of secular growth opportunity, given how much money needs to flow into the new energy system, right? It's not constrained by lack of projects in a sense that people know what they could be doing. It's your point you made, which is actually... That money that's ready to flow into proven technologies in renewables, solar and wind in OECD markets is there's a, a question as to will infrastructure keep up, right? It's the approval process that's required in order to build the grid that enables yet more money to flow into wind and solar. And that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, is how do governments sort of short circuit that process for building out the grid? Because that's probably where the biggest chunk of money needs to go. The other bit that's maybe a little bit of a constraint is interest rates going up, cost of capital. There's also, I think, supply chain challenges that people look at, which makes people a little bit more cautious around investing in the pipeline and paying up for it. And yet, the guy on the sell side remembers when he got 100% of his pipeline in his valuation. And it's probably going to take a bit of time for that to adjust. But look, fundamentally, I think it's a massive investment opportunity, We need three and a half trillion a year to develop the new energy system. And currently, we're sat at just a, a third of that that's currently being invested. So I'm a passionate believer that sector trend is going to drive investment ultimately if governments can ensure the right conditions in terms of investment and the infrastructure. And that in turn will drive not just investment, but also ultimately uh, M&A deal flow. And uh, I look at our own business, you know, renewables and future fuels is already probably, well, probably is the most active part of our deal flow in the wider energy space. And that trend's going to continue for sure. Even if we have maybe a short term dislocation or hiatus because of interest rates, volatility, and maybe a short-term, hopefully short-term, inability to commit to projects or land deals because of that infrastructure and connections question.
0: Thanks, Julian. That sounds like something I need to address in the future podcast as well. <laughs> Thank you very much for being with me today.
1: A pleasure. Great to be here. Thanks for having us, please.
0: And thanks to all for listening to the Mergers and Acquisitions podcast. For earlier episodes, go to your usual podcast provider or go to pilco.com, where you can also leave feedback on the show. Thank you.